Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend Ed Chavruta Yordana Asband, our daf of the day, Masachet Nazir, daf Yudchet, page 18. So our term for this daf was gargantuan, meaning there's a topic here, there's a machoket, there's a lot of different opinions, and it all pertains to determining which day um, the Nazir you know, if you were to become impure and when he can become pure, and it's really quite an undertaking to address the whole daf. So I'm going to try to address a tiny little piece of it that is not, it's kind of like near this big machloket and not not so um, gargantuan at all. You know, by taking the tiny, I'm trying to avoid the big, big, big discussion that is very worth delving into. I'm just trying to focus on the interest of our, you know, talking Talmud discussion. So on Ahmed Aleph, but towards the bottom of Ahmed Aleph, it says, the Gemara says, Vahaditznan. So it quotes, um, it quotes a Mishnah in Kritut, Daftet Ahmed Aleph, Nazir Shnitzmatumot Harbe. If we have a Nazir who becomes impure from several different kinds of ways of becoming impure, right? And that could be, you know, in Kritut, it could be really a whole bunch of different kinds of. Um, of tuma, or it could become, um, or it could be different tumult mate, meaning where it's all tumult mate, but from different bodies, let's say. So the question is, you know, what's he supposed to do then? The Mishnah there says, He only has to bring one korban on all of those tumult. And I'm reminded of Masachet Shabbat and what happens when somebody does a whole bunch of malacha, different malachot, be'alei machad, in one period of forgetting, you know, forgetting that it was Shabbat or forgetting that these activities are prohibited on Shabbat, and then depending, right, each person would, each each activity um, would only entail one korban chatat per avital adot, um, which is a long, long time ago, and I don't know that everybody is going to be thinking in those lines, but this idea that you could have Many tumot and only one korban was what kind of brought it back for me. Montana. So then, then this even this tiny little piece of Gemara wants to know who taught that, who whose opinion lines up with this Kritut Mishnah. Amar of Chista. So Rav Chista says it's Rabbi Yosi Rabbi Yehudahi. The Amar Nizirut Taarami Shvi'i Chayla. So Rav Chista says it's Rabbi Yosi Rabbi Yehuda, and his approach in general was that Nizirut takes it um the the nizirut tahara, right? The idea of the purification process is going to take effect. The purity takes effect from the seventh day of the whole process. And how do we know this? Uh, so let's say he becomes impure on the seventh day and he starts going through the whole purification process, and then again becomes impure on the Shvi'i, on the seventh day, Umani, Rebiosi, Rebiudi. And then there's a citation there where it says, you know, whose opinion is this? And exactly this is Rebiosi, Rebiuda, and that's where Rebiosi gets it from. Kevan, lo And the point here is that because the time of bringing a korban on that impurity um, had not yet come, right? It was not yet time to bring that korban. So then the second impurity kind of smushes together in terms of the impurity count because there had been no opportunity or appropriate opportunity to bring the second, to bring the korban the first time. So the two impurities 
kind of are covered by one korban. He only has to bring one set of korbanot. Um, this is brought up again, meaning the, the idea of shvi'i, nitma b'shvi'i, v'nitma again, b'shvi'i, that he's in, rendered impure twice on shows up again on Amabet, meaning, because as I say, there's this really massive machloket throughout this stuff, and the case itself shows up again um, in the narrower focus of it, again, to say, yes, he really only has to bring one korban or one set of karbanot. There's different different offerings that the Nazir brings. Um, so what I find interesting here is that there's a, a collapsing, I guess, of the number of different times of impurity in t- that all of it can be redeemed or, or atoned for or whatever by the one korban. Um, look, I think it's interesting to see what, you know, how many korbanot you have to bring. I actually found this stuff very hard to learn because it really was talking about things that are just not part of my day-to-day life or part of my religious life at all. And keeping track of the korbanot and what they mean and the significance that's tied to them. It's just like, I know what korbanot are. We've talked about korbanot before. But what I appreciated about this stuff is it's not just about like, oh, these are the number of korbanot you bring. The korbanot and what kind of korban it is really carries a particular type of significance. And that's really what this staff is sort of trying to get at. Like, what's the korban that you're bringing because of your, you know, atonement? What's the korban you're bringing because there's just a requirement to bring another korban? What do they each mean? How do they impact restarting your nizi root or moving out of this phase? I Like, this is just not how we you know, this is just not part of our religious lifestyle anymore. Now, again, and as you've pointed out many times, it wasn't either the authors of the Gemara, really, because the Beit HaMikdash is destroyed for many, many years, or even in the Mishnah. Um, But they still seem to have a much better handle on it than I think we do today. Oh, for sure. For sure. I think they lived it without it being, (laughs) excuse me, as much as it wasn't exactly practically relevant, they clearly are talking about it, you know, like it's something that's very alive for them. And perhaps if we, I don't know, spent all our days learning the daf, meaning not just every day, but all day, every day, we also might feel that way. Yeah, it's possible. But again, I think it's making me pay a little bit more attention to when we get to talking about korbanos, like what's the intent? Each korban has its own intention. And even though we sort of initially, when we talked about the korbanos that a nazir has to bring, whether it's at the end of their nazir or when they accidentally become tame, you know, we just look at it as like, oh, those are the korbanos you bring. And then this staff is sort of really trying to tease out, no, like the, all those korbanos, yes, they're sort of brought as a group, but they also mean different things. Um, and therefore, depending on what meaning you assign each korban, it actually has practical halachic implications. Um, I'm going to jump back to uh, what you, you know, started mentioning, Anne, which is this machlokas of Rebbe and Rebbe Yossi, uh, you know, uh, Ben Rebbe Yehuda. And the Gemara does spend some time on Ahmed Aleph trying to tease out what's the reason for these different opinions. My time is a Rebbe Yehuda. So why does Rebbe Yehuda basically feel that the counting resumes on the eighth day, Right. And so here, again, what's interesting is, is that it ultimately comes back to the core, to the Sukim themselves. 
Amar Kra, and he quotes this pasuk, right? So the pasuk here, which is um, from Bamidbar chapter 6, verse 11, says, right, he shall atone for him for having sinned, you know, about this dead person. Afterwards, it says he shall sanctify his head. So what this shows us is that he only, according to Rabbi Yehuda and Asi, he becomes his, you know, this Nazir Tahor, right? Once uh, he has the sanctification of his head, meaning it, it, that the sanctification of his head starts, you know, only when the time for the Korbanot that he has to bring, those, that's the, the Korbanot of atonement that he has to bring, and when does that happen? That happens on the eighth day. So the Kidesh at, um, at Rosho can only take place at the same time that the entombment can take place, and that would be on the eighth day. Now we get to Rabbi Yossi's opinion, right? Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, right? He would answer back, Im Kane, right? If, he, if you want to say like Rabbi, that the count starts on the eighth day and not on the seventh day, as he says, the Pasuk just should say, it doesn't need that concluding phase, which the Pasuk actually says is on that day. Why do you need on that day, right? If it's just going to start on the eighth day. In other words, if the day you bring the Korbanot and the Kidesh are both on the same day, the day that the count resumes, why do you need that extra phase of right? Why do I need that? If it's not relevant for the eighth day, it has to teach us something about the seventh day. In other words, on that day could should only be referring to the seventh day of purification, which is the day of the head shaving, which the Torah mentioned in an earlier pasuk, in, in pasuk ted, in, in the ninth pasuk. And so therefore, on that day, right, that the kidesh et show on that day has to be referring to the seventh day. You don't need bayomahu to be about the eighth day if you're in the middle of talking about the eighth day. So then the Gemara has to explain, well, then what does Rebbe do with Bayomahu? How do they explain? How does he explain Bayomahu being there? But Rebbe Nami has to Bayomahu, right? Amarlach Rebbe, what would Rebbe answer say to you? Hahula hachihu da'ata. The phrase comes for this reason. Lomarlach ap karbonotav. It's to teach you that even though he didn't bring his korbanot, the count still would start on the eighth day. So what Bayomahu is telling me is, is that I would have maybe thought that the only way the count would start on the eighth day is after I brought the chatat and ola offerings, right? I have to bring the, the korbanot that are supposed to be brought on the eighth day in order for the count to start. But Bayomahu teaches me is that no, the count just starts on that day because it's the eighth day. I don't actually need the korbanot to be brought in order for the count to start. So I think it's just interesting to see that this machloket really has a basis on a very close reading of the psukim themselves. Um, and, and it really just has to do with, you know, paying attention to sort of like these words that I think when we often read, they seem superfluous to us. But, you know, and we've seen this before. I'm not saying something that's new, particular to this stuff. But I just thought it was a very elegant, both sides, both Rabbi and Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Huda, both had a very elegant read of those psukim that I think really justifies either one of those positions. Like, I don't think either read, one, one of their understanding is better than the other ones. So I think that's 
uh, do we say ideal, right? When we can see both sides of the machloket and they both are formulated so tightly to to be elegant in that way. I think there's something very nice about that, even oh, in the context of this difficult death. Yeah, 100%. Um, and I just, you know, it, it was a nice... You know, it was a nice read to hear. I mean, again, I found this stuff actually to be very, very hard because um, I just found the, the what it was talking about was difficult. But this passage was a little bit of a reprieve for me because it was like, oh, this I can do. Exegesis, this I can understand well. We're like off the Corbanos a little bit. That's our Daft discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us reviews where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.